April 15th, 1971, 52 years ago this upcoming Saturday. Within the walls of Tigert Hall at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Florida, a group of students were arrested. A rather large group, in fact, 60 students. They were charged with trespassing. They had entered Tigert Hall in order to speak with then-president of the University of Florida, one Stephen O'Connell. The students were part of a protest led by the University of Florida's Black Student Union, which had presented the president and the university with a series of demands, demands to make the college more inclusive and less segregated. Remember the year, 1971. Still in 1971, only 350 students at the University of Florida were black in a student population of 20,000. That's 1.75% of the student population. The Black Student Union had been making requests, but more importantly, been asking to even get a chance to speak with President O'Connell. O'Connell refused the requests of the BSU to speak with him. A year and a half passed and no request was ever met. After months and months of radio silence, the students and their allies around the campus made their way to the president's office in order to walk through the door and speak to him personally. What followed was the release of tension of years of conflict between students, young people, and the powers that be. By the time the day was over, many of the peaceful protesters within the president's office were arrested, and hundreds of other students protesting that arrest were gassed. Less than a week later, allies of the protesters made demands, quote, drop the charges against the jailed students, lift their suspensions, and commit to meeting BSU demands, end quote. The president denied the request, and what followed was a mass exodus. Quote, 123 black students formally withdrew from the university, end quote. Black faculty and professors as well withdrew. The day of the protests would be known as Black Thursday, a pivotal turning point in the future of the University of Florida. It had been a long time coming, and it was not the end of this story. There are consequences in the years after, all the way up to today. But to understand more about Black Thursday, about what led to those events, about the event itself, you need to know about 1971 and the years that had led up to it. You see, America in 1971 was a time of massive change, a time not too dissimilar from the times we are living in right now. The federal government was struggling to maintain the trust of the nation as a divisive Republican leader, Richard Nixon, held office. The following year, the Watergate scandals would tarnish Nixon's reputation forever. President Lyndon Baines Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1968 as one of his last acts as president in the fallout of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. This action was expected to cause a marked change in racial politics in the United States, but leftover rules of the segregation era didn't just disappear overnight, and racist systems didn't suddenly become less racist. That was true in another crisis America was facing at the time, the Vietnam War. The war in Vietnam, some may not realize, had been going on for 16 years at that point by 1971 in one form or another. It would be another four years until it was over, but between the years of 1964 and 1973, quote, the U.S. military drafted 2.2 million American men out of an eligible pool of 27 million, end quote. And like I said, racist systems didn't just suddenly disappear. When American men were being drafted to Vietnam, black men were far more likely to be drafted to the war than white men. All of these things, these panics and tensions and fears, would continue to cause uproar, especially by the young people of America. The protests at the University of Florida were far from an isolated incident. In fact, a month after Black Thursday in Gainesville, the largest mass arrest in American history would take place in Washington, D.C., an event called May Day, 1971. 
Black Thursday was just a harbinger of what was to come. Here are some students from May Day, 1971. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is the first of two episodes about the protests of the 1970s, specifically 1971, both in Florida and around the country. We're living in similarly fraught times to those times, times where it feels like the government, especially the government here in Florida, is making decisions that many Floridians believe do nothing to actually improve the lives of Floridians, enacting laws that just add more restrictions and take away more freedoms to already marginalized communities. At a time of environmental crises, housing crises, and so much more, many Floridians are making their voices heard about the priorities they want to see the government focus on and not the things that the government are currently focusing on. Floridians are protesting in any way they can about the way the Florida government is behaving. Just this week, as I'm writing this, a group of peaceful protesters protesting the passing of an abortion ban through the Florida Senate were arrested by the Tallahassee Police Department. We'll talk about that more next week. It's been 52 years, and the May Day protests feel all too familiar. So let's talk about the years that led up to those protests in 1971. Let's go back to 1968, the year that so much changed in the United States, the year that's ripple effects made its way to the state of Florida. For many historians, 1968 is noted as one of the most significant in American history, a paradigm shift in the way the American public lived their lives. And a notable list of massively consequential events in American history took place in this year. We won't go in-depth into every single one, but let's list a few so you understand what the, the culture was at that time. The Tet Offensive was launched in the Vietnam War, quote, a coordinated series of North Vietnamese attacks, end quote. The intent was to weaken South Vietnamese strength and to push the United States military to withdraw from the country. On top of the American population's distaste for the war itself and the youth movement against the draft, the Tet Offensive was a devastating blow against American forces. Back at home, an election was looming and Lyndon B. Johnson was about to leave the office. With Richard Nixon seeking the presidency, the Democrats attempted to bring a strong candidate to the contest. But when the Democrats did not take a strong stance against the war, the youth international party known as the Yippies, led by famous activists Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin, believed a protest was necessary. The Chicago Police Department and the Yippies, as they were called, clashed in the streets of Chicago around the Democratic National Convention. The protest became a riot. Nixon would be elected a few months later. Democrats were destabilized long before these riots, however, when prospective Democratic candidate Robert Kennedy, brother of John F. Kennedy, was assassinated in June of 1968. This was just two months after perhaps the most notable event of 1968, the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. That was April 4, 1968. King, having spent the last several years of his life advocating for civil rights, had become a political catalyst and a target for those who sought to keep the racist and segregated status quo. With protests and sit-ins and boycotts following the civil rights movement for a decade, emotions were already high and political activism was strong in support of MLK. So now with MLK assassinated, those invested in his political movement found that enough was enough. It feels to me that after all of the events of 1968, beginning with the assassination of MLK, it felt like the youth movement in America was energized and 
over it. They were fed up with the fact that nothing was actually improving and things just kept getting worse. It feels to me that in the years after MLK's assassination, the likelihood for youth protests to get more intense was much higher than it was before his assassination. Across the country, within days of King's death, protests broke out in over a hundred cities in the country, including right here in Florida in our state capital, Tallahassee. The state of grief in Tallahassee would result in intense conflict and violence, which we will talk about another time. The, they're called the riots, the Tallahassee riots. It's a very complicated story. We will talk about that. But Tallahassee had been the home of student-led protests for many years, joining in with the early days of the civil rights movement. My main source for this section, by the way, is an excellent document about the history of Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, or FAMU, or FAMU as we call it here in Florida. The principal investigator on this piece was David H. Jackson Jr., PhD, who is still at FAMU as a provost and vice chancellor. I'll include a link. Go check it out. It's a very interesting piece of history about FAMU's history. So in Tallahassee at this time, there was a racial divide in the two colleges there. There was Florida State University, which was all white until 1962 and FAMU, which is a historically black university. In 1960, quote, students at FAMU had organized a Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, branch in Tallahassee. In February, they staged a sit-in at Woolworth's lunch counter to protest segregated eating facilities, end quote. Now, that is significant, Woolworth's in particular, because at the same time in Greensboro, North Carolina, four young men had started the movement where they staged a sit-in at a Woolworth's themselves. They were known as the Greensboro Four. Look them up. They're fascinating men who have a huge, huge, huge impact on American history. Now, the students in Tallahassee were doing the very same thing. Marches would be led through the streets of Tallahassee, often met with violence, including tear gas. Over the course of the years, more sit-ins, more marches, and even picketing of segregated buildings and businesses changed the fabric of Tallahassee. Quote, from 1960 to 1964, the students helped to break down racial barriers in the city through demonstrations, legal cases, and various other protests. End quote. Students led the charge throughout the 60s, and it changed the shape of life in Tallahassee forever. In 1968, an event called the Tallahassee Riots, as I mentioned, would leave a bruise, but again, a story we'll talk about another time. The Tallahassee Riots deserve their own episode, but what you need to know is this. Florida had been a part of the civil rights movement and the political activism of the 1960s. Everything you see in movies about the protests at this time, it was happening here in Florida too, and in Tallahassee. The students of FAMU were leading the charge. The trend of protests, student-led protests, did not go away, though I will, I will say that the focus sort of shifted, or, or maybe broadened. It's almost like it saw a different perspective of it, because as the 60s became the 70s, the focus of a lot of these protests, especially student-led protests, it had been very civil rights oriented, and the civil rights were obviously still a part of this, because as I mentioned, the racist situations didn't suddenly go away because of desegregation and voting rights and things like that. But when the country started focusing, these protests started focusing more on the Vietnam War, obviously race was still a huge part of that, as I mentioned earlier with those draft numbers. But it's almost like the decade changed and the focus changed as well, because a lot of the motivation that had been driving a lot of these civil rights protests were, were still there. Black Thursday, the event that, that launched this story, the one we're going to be talking about a lot this week and next week, that was a, a protest that was about race. But what you need to understand is that 
the way that the country's focus shifted to talking more about the Vietnam War was indicative of, of sort of the more the fact that that was such an intensely pressing issue. But the other issues didn't just go away. It's it's almost like they it's almost like the youth movement at this time realized that they could get progress, that they did get progress through these marches and these sit-ins concerning race in America. And they realized that with the pressing issue of the Vietnam War, they could succeed in in turning that focus or expanding that focus onto another very, very critical topic. So like I said, the civil rights movement didn't just end and the treatment of black Americans is a huge part of this movement, but the 70s began to focus on the Vietnam War. For the students, for the young people of this country, racism, the Vietnam War, and a distrust of the government had created a boiling pot. And in 1970, the water boiled over. It's May of 1970. The whole United States erupted in protest and riot in May of 1970. That's because on May 4th of that year, four unarmed students were killed by the Ohio National Guard. If violence of this type, gun violence in particular, is too much for you, you might want to skip about a minute or so, or maybe two minutes. If you're familiar with the Kent State University shootings of 1970, that's where we're headed next. If you don't want to hear about this particular type of violence, I'd skip two minutes. But if you're ready, here we go. My main source about the Kent State shootings is Britannica. I'll include a link so you can read more about it. The sequence of events is as follows. April 20th, 1970. Richard Nixon follows through on a campaign promise and announces American troops will withdraw from Vietnam. Ten days later, he apparently backtracks on this statement, appearing on national television, quote, to announce that U.S. and South Vietnamese troops were mounting a major invasion of Cambodia, which had provided a haven for the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese troops, end quote. Nixon, in just 10 days, had apparently backtracked what he had just come out and said, and the students of America were furious. The next day, May 1st, protests broke out all over the country. May 1st is usually referred to as May Day. Remember that? May Day, we'll talk about that more next week. But up at Kent State, in northeastern Ohio, rallies began against the war. The next day, the rallies took an intense turn when an ROTC building was lit aflame. The ROTC is the Reserve Officers Training Corps, which the students had been asking to be removed from campus. The ROTC was on a lot of campuses, and a lot of people did not want them there because of its relationship, obviously, with the military. At a time when the draft was so unpopular, having a Reserve Officers Training Corps on your campus, on your college campus, which is typically the age that men being drafted to the war were, it was controversial, to say the least. Well, up at Kent State, the ROTC building in Ohio was burnt down. It was lit aflame. The Ohio National Guard arrived the next day. Protests continued into May 4th. The National Guard stood near the ROTC building that had been burned. Now, when the National Guard ordered the protesters to leave, they refused. Tear gas was deployed, and the guardsmen tried to break up the crowd with, quote, bayoneted rifles, end quote. The National Guard essentially broke up the demonstrators with these methods. They succeeded to break up the large mass. The, the crowd no longer occupied as much space or in as many numbers as they had just moments earlier. However, quote, feeling threatened, the more than 70 guardsmen in the contingent began retracing their steps, end quote. And they wound up actually back where some of the crowd was. They, they sort of looped around to go back to the area where the crowd was. Here's what followed, quote, 28 guardsmen quickly wheeled back and over the next 13 seconds fired between 61 and 67 shots. Many of the guardsmen discharged their weapons into the air or at the ground, but a number of them fired into the crowd. Four students were killed and nine others were wounded, one of them paralyzed from the waist down. End quote. Two of the dead were demonstrators, Jeffrey Miller and Allison Krauss. Two of them were, quote, 
bystanders on their way to class, end quote. They were William Schroeder and Sarah Schuer. The commons where the shots had been fired was evacuated, and the fabric of the anti-war movement was forever changed. The national media immediately began sprawling images, uh, a terrifying, a haunting image of a woman over a body with the headline, Nixon's Homefront, was on Newsweek within the month. The news rippled across the country, more student protests, more backlash, and more chaos. National Guardsmen had just opened fire on unarmed students in the commons of Kent State. Nothing would be the same. An Associated Press report was soon plastered in every paper across the state of Florida, updating people on how the university students in the state were going to respond. Quote, four flower-draped crosses were erected on the campus of Florida Atlantic University, end quote. This was the mildest protest. Other schools made more severe requests, like demanding campus security be disarmed permanently. Some schools had a much more active plan. They suggested boycotting classes. It would happen at the University of Florida. See if you recognize the name in this next quote. Quote, President Stephen O'Connell declared a day of mourning to be held on May 6, 1970, but did not cancel classes. It is estimated that 3,000 students were on strike over this decision. End quote. That's the very same president from the story at the beginning of, of Black Thursday, which is an event we'll talk about more in depth next week. But Stephen O'Connell, a controversial figure when it comes to these protests. O'Connell was forced to cancel classes, however, thanks to this walkout. Up at Florida State, the president of that university, Stanley Marshall, tried to lower the heat. He met with protesters, tried to get their perspective. Was he surrounded by police officers protecting him when he spoke to the students? Yes, but the president did hear the requests of the students to suspend a march that was to be held by the ROTC, which is that same organization that started the conflict at Kent State. So he was meeting them where they were, I think. I think he was trying his best to hear them out. He did not want to cancel classes, however, which students rejected. In the Tampa Bay Times published May 6th, 1970, one quote listed is from a student. It goes as follows, quote, If your brother or your sister died, would you go to class? These are our brothers and sisters, end quote. This is another quote from that same article, quote, when the president responded by saying he would not engage in quote-unquote rhetorical arguments, the crowd reacted angrily, and booed him, end quote. Stanley Marshall had just become president of FSU the year earlier in 1969, and with the conflict of Kent State now rippling across the country, it's likely that President Marshall was remembering an event just the year earlier, an event fresh in the minds of the students of FSU as well. You see, just over a year earlier, in March of 1969, a clash between students and law enforcement nearly went south. They called this event the Night of the Bayonets. There was a group at the time in the country called Students for a Democratic Society, or SDS. In all of these anti-Vietnam protests we're talking about, SDS was likely involved. They were there at Kent State as well. Trouble followed SDS throughout the country, however, and their reputation severely dropped when a group called the Weather Underground splintered off of SDS, the Weather Underground being described by Britannica as a, quote, militant group of young white Americans, end quote. The Weather Underground also, quote, sought to advance communism through violent revolution, and the group called on America's youth to create a rearguard action against the U.S. government that would bring about its downfall, end quote. So naturally, the Weather Underground was not very popular to put it mildly, so SDS were met with a similar reputation that they were radicals, that they were dangerous, that they were a, a, ma a massive problem for the people of this country. That's the reputation that they held. The 60s were hardcore, to say the least. 
Either way, SDS was met with intense response wherever they went, which included Tallahassee. On March 4th, 1969, the National Secretary of SDS, whose name was Fred Gordon, he was speaking to students on campus. Quote, earlier that day, President Marshall had obtained an injunction that made it unlawful for SDS to occupy that room, end quote. So basically, President Marshall heard this guy was coming and he got a judge to say, actually, legally, you can't be in this room, which... They actually have a, a copy of the document. There's a print of the document on the website that I'll include in the, in the episode description. It's fascinating that that even exists, that he just said, you cannot be here. That's that. So the police arrived and entered the room where the meeting was. There were, quote unquote, about 150 students. Students were asked to leave by police after they read the injunction, and many did, though 60 did not. It's an interesting parallel here, I'll interrupt myself. 60 students were arrested at the Night of Bayonets in 1969, and 60 students were arrested at Black Thursday. There's no significance to that, I just find the, the, the mirror of that to be very, very interesting. How similar so many of these stories were. I've read so many stories of protests and so many things were just happening over and over again. It's 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 really curious. Not that there's any significance to the amount of students arrested, but I mean, 60 is a lot of students to be arrested on their own campus. Anyway, these 60 students were arrested along with Fred Gordon from SDS. Students had quickly learned about the arrest across the campus and hundreds gathered to protest the police who had arrived. The riot police formed a, a sort of path for the arrested students to be taken to the police vans. The riot police notably had rifles with fixed bayonets. There are some chilling images of this night of Leon County Sheriff's Department officers in riot gear, eyes covered, a rifle in their hands. Protests went late into the night over the treatment of the students and the intense police presence. No one was harmed. The next morning, the headline called it the Night of the Bayonets. The situation never reached the horrifying heights of Kent State, but as Stanley Marshall calmed the protesters on his campus a little over a year later, there's no doubt in my mind that that night was on his mind, the chaos that could have been. He was certainly hoping that that would not be the case again. FSU students protested anyway, as did students at UF and USF over in Tampa. They marched, they organized, they skipped classes, they did marches and rallies outside of ROTC offices on campus. They made their voices heard. At UF, nearly 30 students threatened a hunger strike until, quote, the guns are off campus, end quote. On Friday the 8th, quote, about a thousand Florida State students marched on the Capitol Friday and presented legislators a petition to remove guns from campus, end the war, and unify the country, end quote. Incredibly, Florida's House Speaker, one Fred Schultz, personally met the protesters and accepted their petition. Even Republican governor at that time, Claude Kirk, was interested in not only finding new peace on college campuses, but he wanted to hear from students directly. Governor Claude Kirk is a complicated figure. We've talked about him on this show in the past, but Governor Kirk said, referring to the fact that most college and universities are state institutions, he said, quote, it's the governor's responsibility to open communications, end quote. He had spent some time during the boycotts actually speaking to students. He went to campuses. Some campuses wanted him to visit, and he went to them and spoke with students and heard what they were feeling. Others did not want him to be there, so he... Uh, I think appropriately avoided them, but FSU, just up the street from his place of work at the Capitol, accepted his presence on campus. 
In the Orlando Sentinel on the following Tuesday after all of this was over, they write about why Governor Claude Kirk wanted to speak to FSU students during the protest. He said the following, quote, This, he said, was what he was trying to do when he stayed up all night to talk with FSU students. And the governor added, He will go anywhere in Florida to talk to students so long as he is invited to appear. End quote. Claude Kirk wanted to hear from students, whether he agreed with them or not, whether they agreed with him, because that is what governors are supposed to do. They're supposed to actually listen to the people. Soon the weekend came and Monday followed. The paper, the following Tuesday on May 12th, had a headline reading, quote, Florida, you calm, busy, end quote. The class boycotts were over, but the work was not done. The college administrators were looking into two things from Kent State that had caused the problem in the first place, the presence of an ROTC on campus and the presence of guns on campus. Student groups did not want any campus security to be armed. It was a huge priority for them, but in all the fray of what universities could do to settle the peace, to bring an end to the boycotts and marches, the real cause was still on the minds of organizers. The Vietnam War had been reignited by President Nixon, and they had not forgotten about that. All of the chaos, the heartbreak, the tragedy of Kent State, that was still on their minds, but that did not distract them from their focus on their anti-war protests. The students of America, the students of Florida, would not forget that he broke his promise. And by the following year, on May Day 1971, they would guarantee that he heard them out. Next week on this show, we are talking about May Day 1971, Florida's part of that story, Florida's protests in 1971 and beyond, and the current protests happening in the state of Florida, and how vital it is to hear out the young people of this country. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. I've been wanting to tell this story for a while, and, and there's obviously more to come, so thank you for listening. It sincerely means a lot to me. Sometimes we have to do these deep dives into more frightening topics, and it's frightening for me too because you read about some pretty intense stuff, and it matters to me to get to share it with you. And if you enjoyed this show, if you were... Uh, educated or inspired or feel the need to share it with someone else, please feel free to do so or leave a review on the show because it sincerely helps the show reach new people. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave a review or reach out to me on Instagram or Facebook at WFMPod. Send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your thoughts about these protests and and any similarities they bear to the current day because I find the similarities to be um, very, very, very interesting. So, If you enjoyed this episode, if you want to talk to me, reach out to me, leave a review. I would love to hear from you. I've included links in the episode description to all of the different sources for this, the the main resources about FAMU and and the protests at Kent State, and also I'll include some links to the protests involving the Night of the Bayonets and, and other protests after Kent State at UF, so you can read more about this because there is a lot of writing on it. I also get a lot of my resources from a website called newspapers.com. I'll recommend them because if you are interested in historical research like this, archive research, newspapers.com, I cannot tell you how vital it is. I use it constantly. 
all the music used in this episode was originally composed. I'll include a link as well to the audio that you heard near the beginning of this episode. That is from a documentary about the May Day protests in 1971. I'll include a link. I'd recommend go and watch that so you can see some actual footage of May Day 1971. But we're going to talk about that more next Monday, which... That brings us to the end of the episode. Next week, we're going back into this topic. We're talking more about 1971, about Black Thursday, about Florida, and about protests in the state of Florida right now. I look forward to hearing from you. If you have some thoughts, I truly would love to hear your thoughts. Please reach out to me. But until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water. And this next quote has never been more relevant, I think. It's a quote from Zora Neale Hurston. We talked about it at the beginning of this season, and I think that's a lot of what the Florida students of years past were doing they were going gator they were muddying the water so you yourself go gator and muddy the water have a good week i will see you next monday for part two of this story have a great week